I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept quiet even from speaking good, and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me. As I mused, a fire burned. I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Selah. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Rescue me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. I am speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me because of the force of your hand I am finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help, and do not be silent at my tears, for I am here with you as an alien, a temporary resident like all my ancestors. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday morning gathering at First City Church. My name is Paul, and I serve as the pastor of care and community. I have the privilege and honor um, of doing that. So if you've been with us this summer, you know we've been working our way through the book of Psalms. And one of the benefits of learning and studying and reflecting on the Psalms is they, they teach us how to pray. They teach us how to interact in particular situations and circumstances. They help us understand emotions that God's people are invited to experience and express. And so this morning, the, the situation or the circumstance that we're going to reflect on is when, when there are areas of life where we long, we long to experience transformation and change, but we're struggling to turn the corner. It, it seems like we we take one, one or two steps forward, and, and then we take another step or two backwards. Th- think habits of behavior that you would like to change. Maybe the way you sometimes escape, or the ways you engage in eating or entertainment, or maybe even something good like exercise. How you spend your money, how you interact with a spouse or a friend or maybe a special friend. How you parent your kids, how you engage work habits, how you respond to others in fear or anxiety or with agitation. It sometimes feels like the victory or the change that you long for. It is just out there beyond reach, and you can never seem to get there. Well, the Christian understands that one reason people resist change is because of sin. Worshiping things in creation or living in a way that rejects God's authority. 
And so Psalm 39, the psalm read earlier, it's going to draw us to better understand how we relate to struggles with sin as we long for change. And that change is not yet occurring. Now, as we move forward, it's probably helpful to consider ways that some in the room may interact with sin struggles, some things we may be prone to. For example, some Christians believe in a doctrine called sinless perfection or perfectionism. The the teaching or belief conveys that because of faith in Jesus or because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, a person can and maybe should become so mature that they no longer struggle with sin. You know, there are not yet Christians or newer Christians. They struggle with sin, but the mature ones should not. Now, you may know people who believe in this doctrine of sinless perfection, whether it's something they believe in as outlined by church teaching or whether they simply believe in a falsehood that Christians shouldn't experience ongoing struggles with sin. You'll hear them talk about struggles in the past, but they do not talk about struggles with sin in the present. You often hear them say things like, hey, my faith in the Lord, it has freed me from sinning. Now, other Christians, their struggle with ongoing sin, it it can be deflating, discouraging, even defeating. I've heard some say that struggles with ongoing sin, they lead a person to doubt whether or not he or she is even a Christian. You know, a Christian who struggles with ongoing sin, that is no Christian at all. They are simply a hypocrite. At First City Church, we do not believe that Christians experience a state of sinless perfection this side of the new heavens and new earth. So if you are hoping to hear a sermon at this church, Strategies for a Sinless Life, you are going to be very disappointed. We also do not believe that struggles with ongoing sin disqualify someone from being a Christian. We believe that sin is something Christians will struggle with until our death or until we enter the new heavens and new earth. Psalm 39 is going to invite us to embrace such a perspective, to consider how to relate to struggles with sin in the present. Now, one group I have yet to mention, some of you in the room may downplay the significance of struggles with sin, not because you believe in a doctrine of sinless perfection or because you believe that sin disqualifies you from being a Christian, but because you simply disregard the significance of sin. You have become content with it. You do not long to experience transformation and change. There's a sense that you've made peace with sin. Psalm 39 is going to reject this type of disposition as well. Confronted with struggles in the present, the psalmist is going to express and experience agony and a longing for rescue and redemption. So the title of my sermon this morning is Pleading from the Pit. And our big idea will be when down in the pit, God's people declare they are desperate. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 39. As we explore this text, 
We're going to first consider what it means for the psalmist to be down in the pit. And then we're going to explore what it means for God's people to declare we are desperate when down in the pit. So let's begin with verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in, in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent even from speaking good. So, so the psalmist is reflecting on plans put in place to avoid sinning with his tongue, guarding his ways, guarding his mouth with a, with a muzzle, avoiding, even avoiding being present with people who may draw him into sinful behaviors, remaining silent. Now, whatever specific sins of the tongue the psalmist is struggling with here, that seems to be less significant. Plans to avoid sin, that seems to be the focus. So an effort that's put in place to avoid sinning, that would seem to indicate that this particular sin, uh, this particular sin struggle is not an isolated incident, but it's a struggle with habitual patterns. You know, some today might call that an addiction. Using the tongue in a way that is less a deliberate decision, but more unconscious. You know, I I remember when I first became a Christian, I was prone uh, to use foul language. Foul language was frequently uttered at my home. I had lots of non-Christian friends. I was primarily putting into my mind music and movies that used foul language. I had a bad mouth. Without thinking about it, I would sin with my tongue. Now, I didn't always speak that way. There were some situations and circumstances where I was able to refrain, like with Christian friends, or when I was in a a, a classroom, well, except in, in Mr. Collins' art class, who gave me my one and only detention in life for how I used my tongue. That still stings. So in a sense, I was addicted to using foul language. So as we consider how the the psalmist was putting plans in place to avoid sinning, to refrain from particular behaviors, I, I I want you to consider your life for a moment. While the psalmist seems to have in mind avoiding sins of the tongue, I think we can apply principles of wanting to avoid sin and longing for change more broadly. What patterns of behavior have so consumed you to the point you no longer have the freedom to control your actions or behavior? Maybe in some situations you can't avoid gossiping. You can't avoid talking about politics or sports or Husker football. Maybe when you get on social media, you can't avoid seeing how many people responded to your Be Real or your latest post because you're addicted to affirmation. Or maybe as you scroll through a feed or as you listen to others talk about their lives, you can't help but get anxious about what's going on or angry about things that are taking place in others' lives. You see, when you read books on addiction, you find there are many things that you and I can be addicted to. 
patterns of behavior that we can't seem to break free from. Addictions to eating or exercise, drinking or drugs, being helpful or being right, self-improvement or sex. The list is endless. You and I can form unhealthy attachments and addictions to all sorts of things. Now, because God's people long to be transformed into greater maturity, and because they hate sin, they think proactively. They plan. They invite others to hold them accountable. So when God's people plead in the pit, we do not dismiss personal responsibility. We do not give up our fight against habitual sin patterns. The posture of one pleading in the pit is not a posture rooted in self-pity. It is, not, it is a posture that takes ownership of self. Even in the pit, I have responsibility. I have agency. There is a power I have to act. I am not a victim. I don't blame God or blame others. When God's people are in the pit, we establish boundaries and we set limits. Yet, pursuing responsibility in and of itself, the psalmist finds it is insufficient. Only, only modifying behavior. It often leads to us becoming frazzled and frustrated. Listen to how the psalmist describes his internal response to this self-imposed season of silence in verse 3. I kept silent even from speaking good, and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me as I mused a fire burned. Those of you familiar with literature addressing people trying to stop addictive behaviors, you know that when people are trying to stop, they often struggle with things like anger vengeful resentments, feelings of futility or self-pity, maybe even arrogance and pride and self-righteousness. Stopping a habitual pattern can have dire consequences. This is why many decide it is better to continue to cling to sin or whatever one is addicted to rather than abstain and come clean. The psalmist is describing what many experience when we only change behavior. Rather than flourish, we get frustrated. We get angry. We long for whatever the behavior or action was offering. Focusing only on on changing behavior is often insufficient. It leads to a, a further descent into the pit. So the author Continues in verse 3, I spoke with my tongue. The psalmist moves from a season of self-imposed silence to speaking, saying a prayer to the Lord. When down in the pit, God's people declare they are desperate. So strength is not found in silence and stuffing struggles with sin. Strength is found in shouting shouts of desperation to the Lord. Now, these shouts of desperation, what the psalmist is desperate for, it it takes on a variety of forms. Beginning in verse 4, we're going to explore one as we see how the, the psalmist is desperate 
for a renewed perspective. Okay, now I don't know how many of you have heard that song, Live Like You Are Dying. Okay, a man gets news that, that his days are, are numbered. And it, and it asks, hey, when you get that kind of news, what'd you do? And the, the singer responds, the man responds in the song, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Good, good, good. You guys are good. Okay? <laughs> and he, he concludes, someday I hope you get to live like you were dying. There the singer is asking for a renewed perspective. When we are down in the pit, we are desperate for a renewed perspective. Now, if this principle of longing for a renewed perspective is similar in in Psalm 39, I got to tell you, the the perspective of the two authors, what they are longing for, in many ways, it's different. So let's look at verse 4. Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days, so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. So there, there is some similarity here. The, the renewed perspective that the psalmist is asking uh, to, to better understand is the lifespan of his days. Help me know how small it is. The, the language you have made my days just inches long it actually uses the, the Hebrew word tefak. It means hand breath. This was one of the smallest units of measurement in ancient, ancient Israel. The psalmist is declaring he doesn't want to take the time that God has given him for granted. It is so short. Now, why does the psalmist want a renewed perspective? And how, how is that, how does that perspective differ than the one Tim McGraw offers in Live Like You Were Dying? Here's verse 6. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. So in Live Like, like You Were Dying, the renewed perspective the singer is longing for is that he is He's not going to live forever. He doesn't want to live like he is never going to die and therefore avoid taking risks and enjoy living life until tomorrow. Taking this perspective, living like he is dying, it should lead to him living for momentary pleasure, to take some risks to take some risks, to satisfy self. Sorry if I'm poking at a song that you love, okay? In Psalm 39, the shift in mindset the psalmist is longing for is that when we have a renewed perspective about our days on earth, how fleeting they are, how small they are, 
We do not want to use our time like the common person, rushing around in vain, wasting our lives sinning or in turmoil or heaping up wealth or living for the moment. We want to live differently. Here's how, John, here's how Pastor John Piper says it. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter and perhaps just one and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. In praying for a renewed perspective, in declaring being desperate for that, the psalmist is is declaring he is desperate for a right understanding of how he spends his time on this earth, not being oriented towards gaining greater pleasure. The psalmist wants to spend his days on what is most important on God's timeline, glorifying the Lord, sharing the gospel with others, discipling children to understand what it means to follow Christ in his ways, spending time learning what it means to grow in maturity. When we are down in the pit, we are desperate for a renewed perspective. So in reflecting on the limited number of days, The psalmist is not longing to live for momentary pleasure, nor is he describing the the futility of his days like the writer of Ecclesiastes. Instead, he's, he's expressing, I don't want to spend my limited days in futility. Later on, in verses 9 through 11, we read how the psalmist recognizes how God's purposes and plans, they are at play in the the days of his life. Our days, they are not futile. But we can spend our days in futility. When down in the pit, God's people declare they are desperate for a renewed perspective. So let's move from there on to the second thing we see the, the psalmist declare he is desperate. And we see in verse 7, he is desperate for rescue. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Rescue me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. So the the psalmist here is demonstrating a posture of surrender. I can't save myself in this struggle. Behavior modification, it is not enough. Even if I'm successful changing my actions, something about my heart is still going to be broken. Maybe I'll be prone to jealousy or envy or anger or fear or self-righteousness, as the the psalmist has said. I may be able to suppress certain actions and behaviors, but I'm going to burn hot. My pain will intensify. So my ultimate rescue, it needs to come from a redeemer. The psalmist is longing to be rescued, to be delivered. See, in our struggles with unwanted behavior, in our struggle with addictions, in our struggles with ongoing sins, we often believe, I I can stop any time. I'm in control. When, When people say that I'm not in control, they are wrong and I am right. In pleading for rescue, the psalmist is acknowledging those things aren't true. I am am not in control of my circumstances. There is a way that I am powerless to change. 
I need the deliverance of the Lord. The, the psalmist is expressing a view that sin, it, it is more than deliberate actions and conscious behavior. Sin is a problem of worship and what we are enslaved to. Addictions and habitual patterns oftentimes are done far more in an unconscious way. We need to be set free. Rather than continuing to worship idols of control or pleasure or security or status or comfort, we need to be delivered. See, in the Gospel of John, Jesus declares, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Christian, we can accomplish nothing redemptive apart from Christ. We need to be delivered. And this is true with really big sin struggles, like habitual patterns that we like to keep private, and less significant ones. Addictions to earthly things like Netflix and our smartphones that are far more socially acceptable. When we try to rely on our own strength, we fail. We must admit weakness. We must come to a place of surrender. Now, now some of you may wonder, how does declaring that we are desperate for rescue not dismiss personal responsibility? You know, we've seen the psalmist taking ownership. We've heard how the psalmist is praying to the Lord. The the psalmist is, is not dismissing personal responsibility. But what the psalmist is doing is putting personal responsibility in its proper place. Here's how uh, Christian psychiatrist Gerald May says it in his book, Addiction and Grace. The power of grace flows, and the power of grace is what rescues us. The power of grace flows most fully when human will chooses to act in harmony with divine will. In practical terms, this means staying in a situation being willing to confront it as, as it is, remaining responsible for the choices one makes in response to it, but at the same time turning to God's grace, protection, and guidance as the ground for one's choices and behaviors. It is the difference between testing God by avoiding one's responsibilities and trusting God as one acts responsibly. So in in declaring he is desperate to be rescued, the psalmist is not playing the role of a victim. Testing whether or not God will act, in turning to prayer and in pleading for rescue, the psalmist is trusting God will act. God will care. Uh, He can trust in God's grace, protection, and guidance. Some of you think that your current state of struggling with unwanted behaviors or your current state struggling with sin or addictions, struggles in marriage, struggles in parenting, whatever struggles come to mind, you think it is because you're not strong enough. Like you're not taking enough personal responsibility. And and I do think that is true for some of you. But for others, it's, it's not that you're not strong enough. It's that you're not desperate enough. You won't plead for help. You won't declare you are desperate to be rescued. 
You give up on the Lord when down in the pit, God's people persist at declaring they are desperate. Now, if you're with us this morning and not a Christian, maybe you have never pleaded with the Lord to be rescued. Maybe you're longing for change and transformation. You're longing to be set free. Maybe trusting in self. You've been trusting in your ability to change and refrain. And maybe this morning, as the psalmist says, you're burning hot. Your pain is intensifying. Maybe you have never cried out to the Lord to be rescued and you're being provoked to that end this morning. You're down in the pit. Will you continue to trust in self or will you declare you are desperate to be rescued? See, when down in the pit, God's people declare they are desperate and that desperation takes the form of declaring the need for a renewed perspective and the need to be rescued. Now let's explore a third thing the psalmist declares. Psalm 39 concludes, Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am here with you as an alien, a temporary resident like all my ancestors. Turn your angry gaze from, from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and I'm gone. So I've labeled this desperate for relationship, but I think this is less the psalmist being desperate for relationship, but more experiencing how desperation can be experienced or expressed within relationship. Okay, let me explain. You may read or hear the conclusion of this psalm, and you kind of feel like it ends on a bit of a downer, like it's a like it's a bit incomplete. The psalmist understands because of the presence of indwelling sin, God should turn his face away. We have no business expecting God to look at us. We are filthy and dirty. It seems the psalmist is vacillating between longing for relationship with the Lord, hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help, and longing for the Lord to abandon him. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up again. An alternate translation, the English Standard Version says, turn your gaze from me that I may smile again. So the conclusion seems it isn't so much a plea for something comprehensible, but a plea experiencing real and raw relationship with the Lord that can sometimes... A plea in desperation can sometimes be confusing or incomplete or maybe even incorrect. The reader gets a peek into what that, that looks like. And that may be puzzling and perplexing to many of us. And maybe that should be. You see, most psalms engaging themes of suffering, which Psalm 39 falls into that category, suffering with sin... Nearly all of those psalms communicate a descent into the pit, but they end with some sort of praise and resolution. So they communicate a descent down into the pit, but they conclude with a sort of ascent. For example, Psalm 13, a psalm expressing sadness and sorrow and feelings of being abandoned, 
concludes, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Psalm 70, a psalm calling on the Lord for help and rescue, it concludes, I am oppressed and needy. Hurry to me, God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. You see, it ends with hope. It ends with some sort of confidence in the the Lord uh, delivering his people. It ends with a bit of praise. Those psalms, the, the psalms engaging themes of suffering consistently conclude with words of hope, words expressing confidence. Now, people familiar with the Bible will often identify that there are two, two psalms that fail to fit that pattern. Psalm 88, which concludes with the language, your wrath sweeps over me, your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. You have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Hey, I'm glad I'm not preaching the good news of the gospel out of that psalm this morning. It seems to be missing praise reflecting confidence and hope. And Psalm 39, ending with a language, Lord, stop looking at me so that I may smile again, seems to be missing that praise as well. The language at the conclusion, it seems incomprehensible or incomplete, maybe even incorrect. And so you may wonder, is it okay to pray like this? Or is a prayer like this unbiblical? Should the way this prayer concludes, should it be found in the pages of Scripture? You see, sometimes the theology you express to the Lord is incomplete, maybe even incorrect. And that that is probably even more so the case when you are down in the pit and you are desperate. The presence of Psalm 39 in the Scriptures, praying in a way that is incomplete and incomprehensible, maybe even incorrect, teaches us that's not wrong. Here's the late pastor, Timothy Keller, describing how God is using the conclusion of Psalm 39 to teach people about prayer when we are desperate. It is safe to pray like this with me. It's safe to pour out your deepest feelings with me. In other words, Psalm 39 shows us where your deepest feelings, your anger, your tears, where they belong. Where do they belong? In your heart, where you refuse to admit them or express them? So stuffing and silencing them? Or or do they belong just being expressed, just dumped? Pastor Chris talked about this a couple weeks ago. Does God want us just to be vulnerable with others? Is that the point of the gospel? Or does the gospel invite us into real relationship with the living God? Keller continues, I'm all for talking to friends. I'm all for talking to counselors. But ultimately where your tears belong is not managed and packaged and manicured in some little confessional prayer. They belong in pre-reflective outbursts from the very depth of your being in the presence of God. Our Father in heaven gives us freedom to pray words of desperation when we are down in the pit. 
When down in the pit, God's people declare to him that they are desperate. Their prayers are not all managed and packaged and manicured. They are sometimes incomplete and incomprehensible and sometimes maybe even incorrect. It's safe to pray like that. Your prayers don't have to reflect a perfect, complete theology. Thank God, because my prayers certainly don't. Sometimes as the Lord responds to our longing to be rescued, we do not experience immediate relief. But Psalm 39 teaches us we are invited into deeper relationship. The psalmist is clinging to a deeper understanding of who God is. The psalmist is experiencing deeper relationship as he is desperate. When I'm in the pit, I can cry out to the Lord and it doesn't have to be all put together. I can cry out when I'm desperate, when I'm not feeling redeemed, when I don't feel like I have been rescued and I feel like relief has not yet come. Now, if you're thinking that Psalm 39 tells an incomplete gospel story, It is incomplete. Some passages in Scripture do not tell the full story of the gospel. That's how we feel sometimes. The psalm emphasizes how to pray when we are down in the pit, still struggling. Sometimes we feel defeated. Sometimes we are desperate and not all put together. Is it okay to pray in such moments? Psalm 39 teaches us it is. Psalm 39 is a bit of a cliffhanger. In and of itself, it tells the story of someone suffering with sin. There certainly is some redemption and some deliverance in in how the psalmist is honest about his pain and trusting God to rescue. He is at a place of surrender, longing to be delivered. But Psalm 39, it also points to something to come. The shouts of salvation that will be expressed in the next psalm, the very next psalm, Psalm 40, what we will explore next week. And it points to the redemption you and I have in Christ if we have surrendered to him. And a day when you and I will see God face to face, when he will not turn away and we will smile. In some ways, the conclusion of Psalm 39 It may be well placed if we preached a sermon on Good Friday. When Jesus descended down into the pit of death. So in that vein, let's conclude demonstrating how Psalm 39 points to that descent into the pit. The final moments of the death of Christ are recorded this way in the Gospel of Matthew. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? See, the scriptures teach us that Jesus never sinned, but he became sin. He took on the sin of people like you and I. Jesus took on the disposition of one who did not smile in God's presence. He took on the disposition of the outsider the one who felt abandoned and rejected because of sin. In Christ, the plea for God the Father to look away from sin, it's honored. But the longing for the Father to look away, that I may smile again, that one is dismissed. Christ did not smile, so you and I can. He rescued and delivered us from our indwelling sin so that we don't have to rescue ourselves. We don't deliver ourselves from the pit, and we no longer wait to be rescued. 
we know we have been rescued. We know we have been delivered. And that produces big smiles with satisfaction and delight. Now, if you're struggling with that satisfaction and delight this morning, and you are in Christ, if you're feeling defeated by some struggle with indwelling sin, some pattern that you can't seem to get set free from, you want to turn the corner and it just doesn't seem to be happening, Psalm 39 invites you to remember when down in the pit, God's people declare they are desperate. As we are desperate, may we declare our need for a renewed perspective and that we are desperate for, for being rescued and may we long to experience deeper relationship with him.